Good evening. It's good to be here with all of you, as always. Let me just open up our time here in a quick word of prayer. Father God, God, I thank you for another opportunity, God, to gather together to study your word and to worship you as a body. God, I thank you for all who are here. I thank you for the opportunity to preach. God, I do pray that you would help me to proclaim your word clearly, God, to proclaim it in a way that um, makes sense, in a way that is true to what it says. And God, for all who are here, I pray that you would help each one to set aside this time that we have now, this hour, to focus our minds and our hearts on your word, God. I pray that, like Bruce said, that the preaching would be hard and that our hearts would be soft, God, that each of us would be transformed by your word into the image of your son, even tonight. And so I pray and ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we are going to be back in the book of James tonight. So if you want to turn over there, please do. We'll be focusing particularly on verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1. So we're in James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. So as we begin, let me just give us a sense of the structure for the message tonight, right? Just to kind of lay out how we're going to spend our time. So you can kind of look at the message tonight in five parts. So first of all, we're going to review. So we're just going to review from verses 1 through 8, just to get back into the flow of the letter here. I know it's been a few weeks since last time I was up here. Um, I think it was New Year's Eve, actually, or New Year's Day, maybe. Um, So here, so we're going to do that. We'll review first. Second, as we move into our text proper, the first thing we're going to look at is the primary exhortation for this evening, and it's this idea of boasting. So that's the first thing we're going to really zone in on in our text. Third, we'll spend a fair amount of time just talking about the identity of who James is giving this particular exhortation to tonight. So that'll be number three, and we'll kind of pause there for a bit. The fourth thing we'll get to is kind of the core of the text, And it's really what is the proper object of the boasting that James is going to exhort us to this evening. So that'll be the fourth thing. And then fifth and finally, and and honestly, I don't think we'll have as much time in this as I wish we would, but we'll look at an improper object of boasting. So at the end of our part tonight, the end of 9 to 11, kind of the second half, really hones in on an improper object of boasting. And particularly, it's this uh, illusion, really, this illusion of height that riches gives. And so we'll spend some time talking about that. So there's your five parts, though. So here, as we begin in truth, uh, let's just read through our section together. So again, that's James chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 11. But let me just grab from the top of the chapter down through where we're at. So here now, the word of God. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. 
For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So first, like I said, some review. Uh, So these words which we've just read, this letter of James, remember originally came from the pen of God's faithful servant, James. This is James, the brother of Jesus Christ, and eventually the prominent leader in the early church there in Jerusalem in particular. Beginning with verse 2 now, James has been exhorting his readers, most likely prior congregants of his, Jewish believers that have had to flee Jerusalem due to various persecutions. James refers to them as the 12 tribes in the dispersion or in the scattering. James has been exhorting these people particularly with regard to trials, with regard to perspective on trials, with regard to the proper way to deal with trials. So that's really been the theme. So verses 2 through 4 in particular called for a proper perspective on trials. So perspective was the first thing. James described the manner in which God uses trials to mature and to complete us. Although trials seem to us unpleasant, of course, inconvenient to say the least, the reality is that trials in God's hands are like the perfectly heated furnace of a master blacksmith. Now that analogy comes into view with that word test that James uses uh, in verse 3 there, the testing of your faith. The idea is really that it's the way that a blacksmith puts a precious metal through a furnace and removes impurities from it. That's the idea of testing there. And so again, God uses trials to equip us with the qualities that we lack, to burn off what's not supposed to be there, And ultimately, all of this is really forming us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, right? That's really the net result of this. It's like Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And that's really the work that God does through trials. And so this truth about trials, the fact that God uses them to conform us to the image of his son, This truth is cause for great rejoicing. This is the reason that James exhorts us to consider trials pure joy. It is not a call to pretend that trials are something that they aren't, right? It's really a call to see trials as they truly are, which again, when you realize that they are just tools in God's hands that he is using to perfect us and complete us, again, ultimately to form us into the image of Christ— then we see that they really are cause for great joy. So verses 5 through 8 then continued in this context of trials. But now James takes a slightly different focus, not so much the perspective. Now he says that since God is in this process of perfecting us, of completing us, ultimately to the point where we would lack nothing, as he concluded in verse 4, the reality is that presently we lack much, right? And perhaps we lack nothing more than the wisdom which is needed for dealing with these trials that God brings. And so this was James's theme then in verses 5 through 8, the need for godly wisdom and really specifically the exhortation to ask God for that wisdom. He said in verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Remember as well that the basis for this prayer, the faith, is not just a self-willed confidence, okay? That's not what James has in view. Really, the only proper basis for this faithful prayer 
is the very character of God. And that's what James lays out in verse 5 quite succinctly. That God is first the one who gives generously to all without reproach. Remember, we talked about that means he is ready at all times to give. That he desires, in fact, like a loving father does, to give when he is asked. That he has this singular, singular desire of blessing those who come to him and who ask for wisdom. That God gives without partiality, right? James says, to all. That he does not make distinctions the way that wicked men do. Uh, and lastly, this, uh, these characteristics of God that are involved here, that he does so without reproach. That there is no word of reprimand which accompanies this answered prayer. And so again, James gives the basis here for the faithful prayer which he exhorts us to. And it's this very nature of God. And James says, quite simply, that the one who asks God for this wisdom, this wisdom for dealing with trials, that it will be given him. That's the promise given there in verse 5. If anyone asks God, lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So verses 6 through 8 then expanded on the negative side of that, right? So verse 5 concluded very positively. That prayer will be answered. However, verse 6, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So James uses a familiar illustration here to tell us what he's talking about. He brings up this idea of doubt. But we know that James is not condemning someone who deals with a doubt, or who occasionally deals with doubts even. That in view here is really someone who is in a constant state of doubting, right? That is the image he's bringing up with this wave of the sea. That just as the waves are in this constant state of unrest, being blown here and there by the wind, that James is addressing the person who is in a constant state of doubt, who has really never ultimately put their faith in God, and who therefore isn't even in a saving relationship with him. Because such a relationship can only come by faith in the first place. And of this one, again, James says, that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So there's a great, great contrast made there between the one who asks faithfully on the basis of God's character and the one who lives in a constant state of doubt. That person should not expect anything from the Lord, James says. And so with that, we really arrive at our text tonight, at verse 9 now. So verses 9 through 11 are very similar to verses 2 through 4. We're still going to be dealing primarily with this uh, proper perspective in trial. That's still the theme. But verses 9 through 11 are going to advance the cause of verses 2 through 4 in at least two distinct ways. For one thing, while verses 2 through 4 were intentionally broad, right? James said trials of various kinds. Verses 9 through 11 are going to be much more specific. We're going to hone in on a particular sort of trial. And as you can see in front of you, it's this trial of poverty and wealth. Okay, that's kind of the sub-theme. Also, verses 9 through 11 are going to focus on a different basis for the need for this perspective. Here's what I mean. In verses 2 through 4, James really honed in on the way that God uses trials in our life, right? The way that he uses it to work positive, eternal good in our lives. But verses 9 through 11 instead are going to focus on a settled reality that God has secured in the midst of trial. So the focus now is not so much 
how God is using trial in your life, but more so a reality that is beyond trial, okay? But the conclusion is the same. It's still a call for this proper godly perspective on trials that God brings. So then, we've come back to verse 9. Let's just read verses 9 through 11 once more. So James chapter 1, starting in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, in the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So that first word in the Greek text is this one that we have translated to boasting. So that's the word that gets the emphasis. That is the primary exhortation that we're dealing with. Now, I don't like how the ESV translates these third-person imperatives that James uses over and over. Again, third-person imperative is the idea of commanding he, right? It's not really a command to you per se. It's a command to this representative person that James is addressing. I don't like the the translation of let him because I think it just brings in too much other English meaning, right? It sounds like you're being commanded to allow someone to do something. But I like how the legacy has it, legacy standard. They put verse 9 as, but the brother of humble circumstances is to boast in his high position. That he is to do so. That's good. That's really the idea, right? It's an imperative. It's something that he is to do. Um, But again, there's not that extra meaning of the allowing someone to do something. So the range of translations for this word, uh, boast, exult in, glory in, rejoice in, take pride in, those are all sorts of the idea that's behind this. Now, the word is used 37 times in the New Testament, twice in the book of James, and 35 times across Paul's writing. And so Paul is, uses it quite a bit. Now, the fact that we are commanded to boast at all here in James, I think likely seems strange to at least some of you, right? Maybe it's just me, but I think in common usage of the word, we more often associate it with something negative, Right? That boasting, exalting in, taking pride in, humanly speaking, we know these things are favorite activities of the flesh, right? Our flesh loves to boast, but that bent is towards a uh, more of a self-boasting, right? Like a prideful boasting. But the thing is, the word itself is morally neutral. It doesn't inherently imply anything wicked. The determining factor is what is being boasted in, okay? That's the key. Both Paul and James give negative and positive examples of boasting. A great example from Paul's writings would be in 1 Corinthians. At the end of chapter 1, Paul writes this, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, verse 29 now, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we see in that passage both sides of the word, right? First, he gives that negative example, that we're not to boast in ourselves. But then he goes on to give the positive example, that we are to boast in Christ, that we're to boast in God, whom we know through Christ. And James, likewise, in his two usages of the word, captures the positive and the negative of this. So we have the positive in front of us this evening in chapter 1, but at the end of chapter 4, if you just glance forward to that, James 4, verse 16, just to look at this, 
He writes of the arrogant and presumptuous businessmen in this context, James 4.16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. And so James gives a negative example there. So then the thing is this, it's an oversimplification to say, and I think we've maybe said this or heard others say this, that Christians ought not to boast. To say that a Christian ought not to boast, I was thinking about it, is kind of like saying that a Christian ought not to worship as a response to idolatry. See, the issue with idolatry, of course, is not this concept of worship altogether. The issue with idolatry is that it's worship pointed at the wrong object, right? Anything other than God himself. And it's actually similar with this concept of boasting. That the issue is not boasting itself. Rather, the issue is boasting with the wrong object, boasting with the wrong intent. And so, James, this evening is going to give us the positive side of this. He's going to make sure that we boast properly. As we dig into this word boasting, there's one more comment I want to make. Um, I don't know how to say the guy's last name, but Edmund Hebert, Hebert, he's a commentator. Um, He made an observation that I thought was really helpful. He said this, and again, he's talking about this word boasting. He said, the verb rendered take pride in denotes a strong personal reaction a feeling of pride or exaltation in the condition mentioned. And this is the part I really like. It encompasses the individual's total reaction, both his inward feeling and the outward expression of exaltation. I really like the part about it encompassing the individual's total reaction, both inward and outward. I feel like with our English translations, we're kind of forced to pick one of those. None of the words for me really seem to cover both sides of that. For example, I feel like um, taking pride in something or rejoicing in something, that feels very internal to me, just the connotation of that. But likewise, boasting or exulting, right? Okay, that feels more like an external reaction. Um, but what Heber or Hybert, he brings up this idea, though, that really in view is the whole reaction, right? It's an inward reckoning, but it's also an outward response. So that's what we're being called to here. That's the boasting in view. So... Let's move on now to who James addresses with this exhortation, right? So we've got in view what this idea is of boasting. So as I've already mentioned briefly, these verses are honing in on the trial of poverty and wealth. And James starts on the bottom end of that spectrum in verse 9 with his description of the lowly brother, it says. Now the Greek word is tapinos, and it literally means not rising far from the ground. But of the eight times that the word gets used in the New Testament, it's never used in the literal sense. Usually when the word tapinos is used, it's a reference to humility, right? A metaphorical reference describing someone as humble. For example, actually, just scan forward in James again to chapter 4 and look at verse 6. James writes in chapter 4, verse 6, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so the word is translated humble there, and really that's our word tapinos, or what we have as lowly in our text. In both cases, the key in James to understanding what is meant by that word is the word that it's being held in parallel to, or that it's being contrasted against. If you're still over at chapter 4, in verse 6 you can see it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the tapinos, or what they have as humble. And so there it does seem that humble is the right translation, right? It's a contrast, this lowliness is a contrast to pride. However, go back to chapter 1 and look at our verse again, verse 9. Uh, James 1, verse 9 says, 
Let the tapenos, lowly, brother, boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. And so here, with rich being the idea set up in contrast to it, the idea is not so much of humility, the lowliness. Really here we're dealing with poverty, or with low social status, you could say. And so when James says, um, let the tapenos, brother, boast in his exaltation, Lowly is fine, but really the idea, again, is poor or low social status, low circumstances in that sense. While we're on this word, there's one other comment worth making. Um, the word tapinos, again, that's what we have in verse 9 there. As it goes on, so let the tapinos, lowly brother, boast in his exaltation. Then verse 10, and the rich in his, the Greek word is tapenose. So without knowing any Greek, right, you can hear that sounds really similar to tapinos, and it is. It's just the noun version of the adjective used to describe the lowly brother. And so basically another really literal way that you could render verse 9, just to hear the contrast James is making, would be this. Let the lowly brother boast in his height and the rich in his lowness. That's the idea. So the one who is low is being called to boast that he is high, and the one who is rich that he is low. And so there's that reversal going on. One more comment on a word here for you, and particularly, again, with this idea of the identity of who we're talking about. Um, It's that word for rich. In the Greek, it's plusios. The idea is of someone who is rich enough that they no longer need to work for a living. This is someone who is wealthy to the point of just abounding in material resources. So that's important because what we have before us is a really stark contrast. James is talking about someone who is low in society, who is poor, who lacks social status, and is contrasting them with someone who is so rich that they don't even need to work for a living anymore. So that's the picture he's putting before us. However, in terms of the identity of who James is talking about, material status is not the only thing he has to say. The key word is in verse 9, and it's that of brother. Now, James uses this word some 19 times throughout his letter, and it's a definite favorite way of his to address his audience. The word can be used in its literal sense, as in like a male sibling. Um, It can be used in a generic communal or national sense. But really, as you review James's usage of the word, it's clear that what he has in view is the brotherhood that is shared by believers. So James uses brother basically synonymously with believer. Chapter 2, verse 1, if you want to look forward there, perhaps makes this most clear. James 2, verse 1 says this. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So so the expectation is that these whom James addresses as brother do, in fact, hold, hold the faith in Christ, and he exhorts them here to do it in a particular way. But again, the assumption is that they're believers. And so in chapter 1, verse 9, we can say pretty confidently that James's reference to the lowly brother, really the poor brother, that this is a reference to a believer. However, the key interpretive challenge with this text is not that part, but it's really determining what can we say about the second one who's in view, this rich in verse 10. The question becomes, is the rich man in view a believer as well or not? So what you conclude on this has a big effect on the meaning of the passage. It changes the whole coloring of how you read verses 9 through 11. And I'll just tell you right up front that I conclude that this rich man, we can't say that much, is a believer as well. I think he is. 
Um, And I'll give you four reasons that I come to that conclusion here. So first of all, the first argument for the rich being a believer is grammatical. So hang with me. I know this is a little dry. So if you look at the beginning of verse 9, again, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. It's a valid sentence all by himself, that first part. The lowly brother is to boast in his high position, right? You've got a subject, you've got a verb, there's an adjective in there, some bonus stuff, but it's a full sentence all by itself. However, the second clause is incomplete. Literally, what you get in the second clause is just this, the rich in his lowliness. So we've got no subject, we've got no verb. We just have an adjective and a prepositional phrase, which is not coherent. <laughs> so the question becomes, what do you do with that, Right? And so really, without getting super into this, the most natural thing to do grammatically is just to take the subject and the verb from the first clause and to carry those forward. And honestly, at least this is what happened to me just reading this naturally, I think that's what we all do in our minds. If you didn't have any added baggage coming to this text, I think you pretty naturally know that's what he means. He's carrying forward the subject and the verb from the first one, and now he's kind of shifting and referring to another brother in a different spot, right? And so that's the first argument for the rich being a believer, and it's simply the grammatical argument of carrying forward that subject and verb. Now, the way that people try to get around the grammatical argument will be by claiming that for James, the rich, that little phrase, is kind of a technical phrase, that it has loaded meaning for him, that really it's actually equivalent to unbeliever when he says this. And they would cite two places to uh, support that. The first would be in chapter 2, verse 6, if you look forward. James 2, verse 6. It says this, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And so here, in verse 6, I think it's perfectly fair to say that these are not believers. These rich are not. Uh, similarly, if you look forward in chapter 5, so if you keep looking forward, chapter 5 of James, verse 1 there, it says this, James 5, 1, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And James goes on in chapter 5 to give a very graphic condemnation of these rich as well, who also in this context are, again, clearly not believers. So it's fair to admit that two out of three of James's usages of this word are very clear reference to unbelievers, but that is not to say that James has no category for believing rich. In fact, in both chapter 2 and 4, when James again addresses rich, he leaves plenty of room for there being believers among them. And not only that, but you have to consider the greater biblical usage of rich outside of James. While there certainly are examples of the wicked rich, That is not exclusively the case. It's far from it. In fact, especially in the genre of Old Testament wisdom literature, which as you go through all of James is something he really leans on very heavily, an example like Job stands out. Job was magnificently rich, and yet Job is described as blameless before God, and in fact, by James himself in chapter 5, is held out as a great example of steadfast faith. So I don't think it's sufficient to understand rich as equivalent to unbeliever, even for James. So now the third argument, then, with regards to the identity of the rich, is how, you, how it reads if you take it to be an unbeliever. So here's what I mean, right? If James has an unbeliever in view, then the statement reads extremely 
um, sarcastic, even darkly sarcastic, honestly. If James is, in fact, referring to an unbeliever there, then the statement that they should boast is actually a sarcastic statement that they should boast in that which is their true and final downfall, in the eschatological end times, and final humiliation at their judgment. That's how it has to be taken if he's not talking to a believer. And the issue for me is, while James certainly uses strong language, even emotionally charged language throughout his letter, he never goes quite to this level of irony, of really dark irony. Even his strong condemnation in chapter 5, that we actually already pulled a little bit out of, though it is graphic and tragic, the condemnation that he has for the rich there, it is at least stated straightforwardly. There's no sarcasm. There's no irony there. And so again, to me, it's much simpler to take this just as an exhortation to two brothers on either side of the socioeconomic spectrum rather than a really dark, ironic judgment on an unbelieving rich man. And so then finally, one last argument related to this um, has to do with an Old Testament verse that seems very likely to be the basis for what James is saying here. And it's out of Jeremiah chapter 9. So Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. And just listen or turn there if you want, but listen to how um, similar this is to what James says. Jeremiah wrote, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love justice and righteousness in the earth for in these things i delight declares the lord so if we allow that these verses in jeremiah are very likely in the back of james's mind as he teaches there in verses 9 through 11 then it's very natural to understand that just like jeremiah was that james is simply admonishing the poor and the rich alike not to trust in riches but instead like jeremiah said in the fact that they know god through christ and really that they're fellow brothers, the poor and the rich. So again, for all of these reasons, the grammatical argument, um, the fact that riches do not necessarily imply unbeliever, even in James, the inappropriately sarcastic tone that would be needed to take it the other way, and then lastly, this possible backdrop of Jeremiah 9, um, I take it as most likely that the reference here, again, is to two believers, okay? So let's move on now. So we've talked about, we've, well, first of all, we've reviewed, right, We've talked about the primary exhortation of boasting and what is meant by that. And now, just now, we've spent a fair amount of time talking about the identity of who James is exhorting. But let's move on to the proper object, then, of this godly boasting. And this really is the core of our verses, right? Just listen to them again, verse 9. But the brother of humble circumstances is to boast in his high position, and the rich man is to boast in his humiliation. The one who is low is to boast in his height, and the rich is to boast in his lowness, but all are to boast in this reversal of position that James describes. Now, James doesn't spend any time, really, elaborating on what he means by this reversal. We know that there is literal poverty and literal riches in view, but he doesn't really tell us directly what is meant by the height of the poor or by the lowness of the rich. Um, But there are three clues, I think, which can help us figure this out. The first is one we've already discussed at length, and it's simply the identity of who he's talking to, right? That they are believers. So that's clue number one, as far as what is this reversal. The people he's talking to are both believers. The second clue 
comes from the contrast that James gives in the rest of verses 9 through 11. So read just from the second half of chapter 10 verse, through verse 11. It says this, Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So verses 10b through 11, they deal with the fleeting nature of life and of this position given by wealth, right? That it's transient, that it's temporary. And this transient, temporary fleetingness is what's held in contrast to whatever this high position is that the rich has. And so what we can say is, because of this contrast, that whatever James is referring to in this reversal is something permanent, something which isn't transient, right? Something which is the opposite of what he described in 10b through 11. So then, this reversal that James has in view is, first of all, something which is true of a believer, and second of all, it is something which is eternally permanent. It's worthy of boasting in. It's worthy of rejoicing in. It's not temporary like what he describes later. And then our last clue is this. It's that whatever this reversal is that James has in view, that it has to be something which transcends the material statuses. As in, it is not as if the material statuses are true and then they are reversed, right? That's not what James has in view. In view here is something which even as the lowly, the poor, even as they are low, they have this height to boast in presently. And even as the rich are rich, they have this lowness to boast in presently. And so this is not simply a call to boast in a future reversal of material roles. This has to be something that transcends that physical material reality. So really what that means is it has to be something in the spiritual realm. So to bring it all together, right, because again, we're piecing this together on our own. James is not explicit about it. The object of this proper godly boasting, we can say, first of all, is eternally fixed, It's permanent, right? That's a contrast to what James goes on to talk about. It's true for the believer, because that's the identity of who James is speaking to. And then this last thing is, it's something that is within the spiritual realm. And so this one reality, what I keep calling the reversal, even though James doesn't use the word, I hope you can all see that it's really the reality accomplished by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That this spiritual reality, in many ways, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not as if there is one thing the poor are to take pride in, you know, what he calls their height, and then some separate thing that the rich are to take pride in, what he calls their lowness. In fact, the one true gospel is, for the poor person, their height, and for the rich person, their lowness. But in both cases, it is really the gospel, which is the very thing that all are called to exalt in. And so let's take these two halves of it in turn. So first, for the poor believer... Let's consider the ways in which the gospel is their height. Okay, as verse 9 says, the brother of humble circumstances is to boast in his high position. So again, even though James does not make any directly explanatory comment here, scan forward and look to chapter 2 at verse 5 there. James chapter 2, verse 5. He says, Listen, my beloved brothers, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? So contextually, in chapter 2 of James, 
James is rebuking his readers for showing partiality to rich who have come to their congregation. But in the process, here in verse 5, I think he gives us a great outline of how the gospel is a high position for the poor believer. Again, look at what he said. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? So let's break down James 2.5, and let's just use this as a way to see how is the gospel a high position for the believer. So first of all, chosen by God. So though in poverty and low position, one might feel as if they're invisible, as if they don't matter, either to the world or even to themselves. But God does not show this partiality at all on the basis of wealth. God does not look at outward appearances. Rather, God looks to the heart. Consider what Psalm 51 says. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God never rejects those who come to him in humble faith and dependence. And just as it is inward lowliness, which God requires, God has chosen many of his elect out of material lowliness. It's just as Paul really observed in 1 Corinthians. We actually made reference to part of this earlier. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. In the base things of the world, in the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so Paul and James both agree that God has chosen many from what may be seen, humanly speaking, as the lowest ranks. And God has done this intentionally for the very reason that James is focusing on here in our text. It's so that the people would boast in God, in their high position of knowing him, and nothing else. And so the gospel is a high position, first of all, because in it the believer is chosen by God himself. Continuing to use James 2.5, though, as a guide, the second aspect we could identify as a part of the height is that in it are found the riches of faith. Look at what he says in verse 5. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? And here again, I think Paul has a helpful explanation to offer. Go ahead and turn over to this one. Let's go over to Ephesians. I'm going to go to Ephesians chapter 1. And just hear what Paul has to say about these riches that are found in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to read starting in verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself, to himself, 
according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him. Verse 10. For an administration of the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. In him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. And so riches upon riches upon riches. Chosen in Christ, sanctified to be holy and blameless, predestined to adoption as sons through Christ, having God's grace bestowed on us, redeemed through the blood of Christ, forgiven of our sins, having God's will revealed to us, being given an eternal inheritance, and being sealed with the Holy Spirit. And this truly is just a sampling of what was described at the top of that section as every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So this is a high position indeed. And honestly, we haven't even touched yet the last part of James 2.5. If you go back over to James now. James chapter 2, verse 5. Because the last part of that is heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. It's just like Jesus said in Matthew 25, that in the end, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom, which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. These are the things that await the believer in the eternal future. And these are the things that the believer is to exalt in. This is the height of the one who may be lowly in the world, yet is chosen by God in great love and is adopted as his son and one day will have the inheritance which accords with that lofty position. This position, this spiritual reality, transcends right right above right at the same time as any material or worldly lowliness that may be experienced and so as we consider trials pure joy like james talked about in verses two through four and we consider that due to the work that god accomplishes through those trials in us just as we do that we should boast in this height that god has accomplished regardless of any trial that this is what we're supposed to have our mind focused on, and this is what we're supposed to be responding to, both inwardly and outwardly, right? That whole response with joy. That we know God and are so richly loved by him. And so again, verse 9, the brother of humble circumstances is to boast in his high position. But obviously we're getting towards the end of our time, so let's move on to verses 10 and 11 now. And the rich is to boast in his humiliation, Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass. And its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. 
so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. So in the case of the lowly brother in verse 9, the exhortation was simpler in a sense. Now, humanly speaking, such a one as the lowly brother would have very little to boast in. So then the exhortation to boast in this high position provided by the gospel is directly given. In a sense, it has no competition that has to be sorted out first. But this is not the case with the rich. Humanly speaking, the rich think that they already have something worth boasting about in their riches. We know that money has a deadly attraction to it. This is something that the Bible attests to quite plainly. Jesus, when teaching the parable of the sower, as you may recall, one of the pictures that he gave for someone who rejects the gospel, who really isn't saved, was that of thorny ground into which a seed is cast. Jesus' explanation of this picture was this. He said, The one who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Jesus says the deceitfulness of wealth is to such a degree that if it's not conquered, if it's not seen to be the lie that it is, it can lead someone to miss the gospel altogether. Paul, too, wrote quite plainly of this. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul wrote this, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evils, and some, by aspiring to it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So for the rich, who are presently high in the world, the exhortation is basically two parts. The first is that they would not boast in this supposed height that they have in riches, and the second is that they would boast in this lowness. So the reason that they're not supposed to boast in that other height, though, is that, again, it's just an illusion. It's not even real, really. It will quickly fade. But on the other hand, this lowness that they have in the gospel, this is real. This is permanent, and it is far better than the supposed height, which is found in worldly riches. So then, let's ask the following, and it's this. In what way is the gospel lowness for the rich? In what way is it their humiliation? So I'll offer two ways that we can look at this. First of all, it's this. The proper perspective of self, which is gained when your eyes are opened by the gospel and you see yourself properly before God. So that's the first idea of this lowness for the rich. It's basically a proper perspective of yourself when you see yourself by the light of the gospel before God. Now, in the light of the gospel, all are shown to be sinners in desperate need of a Savior. In fact, the only thing that we bring to the table, so to speak, is our sin, which has led to our condemnation. And so in the light of the gospel, we see that we are spiritually destitute, we are sick, <coughs> and yet that this is, in fact, a blessed condition. This is a condition which is greatly worthy of exaltation, and the reason is only people who see themselves this way can come to God truly in faith. Excuse me. <clears throat> Listen to what Isaiah wrote as far as this proper perspective goes in coming to God. This is why Jesus said that blessed are the poor in spirit, okay? This is Isaiah uh, chapter 57. For thus says the one, high and lifted up, who dwells forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the crushed and lowly of spirit, 
in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the crushed. Isaiah says something similar in chapter 66, verse 2. For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares Yahweh. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. So again, this lowness is, first of all, that proper view of oneself in light of the gospel before God. As a desperate sinner, yes, and yet that God comes to meet such a one who humbles themselves before him in that way, who recognizes that desperate need. And then a second perspective on this lowness would be, again, first of all, that is a proper view of self before God. But second of all, that you could say it's a proper view of self before others. A proper view of yourself in relation to one's fellow brother or sister has about. We're called in Christ to serve one another in selfless humility. Mark records this in his gospel. He wrote, uh, well, wrote, Jesus said, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And this is, in fact, the very example which Christ himself gave us. Christ himself, who, as Paul wrote, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. Having been found in appearance as a man, he, so speaking of Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so in this second sense of lowliness, we really have the blessed opportunity of following the very example that Christ has given, um, of serving one another by putting ourselves in a position beneath them, counting them more important than ourselves. And so again, James knows, though, that with the rich, he really faces an uphill battle, right? That they think they have something worth boasting about beyond this lowness that he has described in the gospel. Uh, Jesus himself said, after interacting with a rich man who was in love with his riches, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And so knowing the siren call that riches have and how many have shipwrecked their faith upon them, James exhorts his readers, again, particularly the rich, to turn their boasts elsewhere before it's too late. But the brother of humble circumstances, back to our text in verse 9, the brother of humble circumstances is to boast in his high position, and the rich man is to boast in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. The illustration that James uses in verses 10 through 11 is a vivid one. It's one which would have been very dear to his own heart, actually. Um, The word translated heat, you could also take it as hot wind. In the area of Galilee where James grew up, there was a phenomenon called (coughs) the Sirocco. I think I'm saying that right. The commentator James Adamson describes this. Again, this is a seasonal phenomenon in Galilee. The blasting southeast wind which blows there in the spring. Once begun, it blows incessantly night and day. Adamson also quotes from someone named E.F.F. Bishop, but he gives a good description of this. He says, During this time, temperature hardly seems to vary. Flowers and herbage wilt and fade, lasting as long as morning glory. 
anemones, and cyclamen carpeting the hillsides of Galilee in the spring have a loveliness that belongs only to the past when the hot wind comes. Drooping flowers make fuel. The fields of lupins are here today and gone tomorrow. That's something that James would have been very familiar with growing up there in Galilee. And so James says that just as the flower of the field is here today and gone tomorrow, that so it is with the rich man and his riches. The only thing certain about riches is that they will not last. Whether they're taken by circumstances in this life or whether you're separated from them at death, the only thing guaranteed is that you will be separated from them. Riches have no firmness in them whatsoever. And perhaps just as devastating as this inevitability is that you don't even know when it will occur, right? And that's how James concludes as well. He says at the end there, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. There's no saying when it will happen, but that it will happen is inevitable. James writes something similar in uh, chapter 4, verse 14. He says, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. The rich man's supposed height cannot last, and James's exhortation is that it's not worthy of his boasting, that really he'd be better off boasting in the permanent and awesome lowness that is found in Christ. So heading towards the end here, all of this is very similar, really, to what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6. Christ said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. To the poor believer who has no earthly treasure, James says, don't be worried about that. Boast instead, exult, glory in the height of riches which neither moth nor rust destroy and which thieves cannot break in and steal. These riches are far greater than any you could lust after in this world anyways, both in terms of their permanence and in their pure quality. James says, boast in these things that you have in Christ. And to the rich, the message, although seemingly in reverse, is really much the same. That these earthly riches, which you presently possess, are not worthy of your boasting. The height which they seem to confer really is just that. It seems. It's an illusion. But the lowness that is found in Christ, that awesome lowness, is real. And it's worth boasting about. It's worth rejoicing in. For only there, in that lowness, can a relationship with God be found, right? He who opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble... There, in that lowness as well, is where the joys of following Christ's example are found. It's our true calling as believers to serve one another in the lowness of a servant. That is the truly blessed position, according to Christ. So then just once more, as Jeremiah wrote, again, in that very similar passage, Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, who shows loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things. Let me just close us with a word of prayer. Father God, God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for this exhortation written by the pen of your servant James, God that we would not boast in the fleeting, temporary things of this world, God, 
that for us who we feel we have nothing such like that to boast in God, that we wouldn't be concerned with that, that we would put our focus on Christ and on the vast riches that we have in him, like Paul described. And God, for those who have plenty to tempt them to boast in, God, that they would see that really, that that is just an illusion, God, that like the flower of the field, those riches will fade. They're not worthy of their boasting, God. So even for those who count themselves rich in the world, God, that our boast would be in the lowness that we find in Christ and in the awesome and glorious riches that are there. So God, again, I thank you for your word and I thank you for this time. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.